morning, church. Good morning. Whew, a great day this morning. I saw the snow and I said, oh boy. <laughs> and you still came. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It is so exciting to be in the presence of God's people. I enjoy online service when it's necessary, but it is so wonderful to see your faces and to be together this morning. And I'm excited about the word the Lord has given us that we are going to dissect as we continue on in our sermon series, Simple Money, Rich Life. Somebody say that with me. Simple Money, Rich Life. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul has a difficult task. Um, if you need one of the Bibles that we have, just lift your hands and they're going to get you one. Uh, and we also, as I am going to be teaching this morning, we're going to be able to, um, there we go, yep, just start moving around and handing anyone a Bible that needs one. Thank you. Um, as we're teaching this morning, there's also going to be the um, slides that have the scripture. And if you look at the top corner of it, you'll see what page we're in so you can kind of get there quickly because we know when you're not using your Bible, it's kind of hard to figure out where things are um, in a different one. So uh, we hope that that will be helpful as we take a look this morning. But I want to set the scene for you before we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Those of you who need a little time to get there, go ahead. You can start looking now. But here's the deal. Um, Paul is responsible here for encouraging the church to give to a very important cause. But it's a pretty dysfunctional bunch that he's talking to. They've got tons of problems. And he's tried to address these problems in the past, and he's received, let's just say, mixed reviews. There are some people in this church who do not like him. And that's kind of the theme of 2 Corinthians. There are others who love him deeply. Yet there are those that are in need in Jerusalem, and Paul believes that his church is uniquely positioned to meet this need. In fact, he kind of put himself out on a limb and he has confidence in the Corinthians giving to inspire smaller churches to give. And if they don't give, he's going to have a fair amount of egg on his face. So how do you think he will inspire them? Do you think he will guilt them? Do you think he will passionately remind them about God's commandments to give? Do you think he will try to shame them into giving? Will he start up a capital campaign? Or do you think he'll try a different strategy? Did I set this, the anticipation for you yet? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians then, chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. We're reading in the King James Version, and it says, For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready. Lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we that we say not ye should be ashamed 
and the same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. Verse 6, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Verse 9, as it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that minister, ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Be enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Paul's strategy was not to shame them. Paul likely knew, knew what we know today when people feel pressured by shame or guilt. They don't give more, they give less. They despise it. My husband and I was sharing with you the testimony last week about how we were at a, a ministry and how the Holy Spirit had prompted to give and how I had this desire to give and how God met that desire by providing the seed to sow. But this morning, I'm reminded of a, a time that was quite contrary where I felt a spirit of manipulation and I locked down and hunkered down with the determination that this would not be ground that I would be sowing into. I, I almost grieved as I saw those who were manipulated into giving beyond their abilities or beyond perhaps their desires. And so I know that there is a distinct difference and I think that that's an important goal for us today to make sure that we know that as well. That's not God's plan for giving. We're not supposed to give based on guilt or shame. Instead, God has a better path. Decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctant, reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a cheerful giver. So what does the Bible actually say? in this regard, not to give reluctantly or because we feel pressure. 
Does it say, are we to give cheerfully? Yes, as we saw, it does. And this is whether we're at the grocery store or anywhere else. This is whether you're at the register and they ask you, do you round up and you really don't want to round up? Or whether you're going outside of one of the stores during the holiday and someone's asking you for money and you really don't want to give? This is a time for us to begin to really understand without pressure, without guilt, without manipulation, what does the Bible say in this regard? Amen? So that's our goal for today. And I want to start off by helping us to see the practicality of what we do when we give. My first point is we give out of hope for the future. We give out of hope for the future. Now, I know this is a strange scenario, but play along with me for just one second. This is interactive. I really want to hear your thoughts when I ask this question. So really think about this. Pretend for a moment that you're stranded on Mars. All you have is a little freeze-dried food and a dozen potatoes, okay? How long do you think you could survive? Somebody said two weeks, three? Talk to me online. How long? A month? I would say two max. But then you learn that there is a rescue mission on its way but it's gonna take them 18 months to arrive. How do you survive in the harsh Mars environment for 18 months with 12 potatoes? God, prayer, let me tell you something else you would have to do. Plant those potatoes. Instead of eating all 12 potatoes, as my brother correctly assessed, you'd have to plant some of them. And that simple act could result in a harvest that would feed you and give you more potatoes to then plant and eat. And then the cycle could continue to sustain you for as long as needed. A one-time decision to plant could make all the difference to your stranded on Mars with no other option self. Now, if you've read or seen the, the movie The Martian, you'll know where I got this idea from. This is essentially what happens in the plot. Mark from the story plants potatoes and survives until rescuers arrive. He wards off starvation, not by eating first, but by planting first. And when giving seems like the last thing you should do, it's often exactly what we need to do to set things in motion. And this is the point that Paul is trying to establish in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He used a principle that those in an agrarian culture understood. 
And perhaps we understand it now because we've heard it taught before as well. If you only plant a few seeds into the ground, then you only receive a little and a harvest. But if you plant several seeds into the ground, then your harvest will be more plentiful. Paul uses this analogy to help us to see that the same is true of our giving. Paul made it plain and simple for us. We reap what we sow with our giving. Some of our income is bread for us to eat. And some of our income is seed to be planted through giving. We are not meant to keep all the blessings. Instead, God blesses us with a harvest in order for us to be a blessing to others. As I kind of alluded to last week, we are created to be conduits. My prayer was a distribution center. This blessing is meant to flow through us to the world around us. And if you believe that all the money that you have belongs to God, if you believe God is in charge of your future, if you believe God is good, and if you believe God loves a cheerful giver, then why wouldn't we try to give as much as we possibly can? We give while looking for God's blessings. I want you to show this um, next slide for me, Curtis. I want you to follow along. There was a 2013 Harvard Medical School experiment where radiologists were asked to detect lung nodules. Basically, they were asked to do what they did all the time, examine some CT scans and look for abnormalities in the lungs. Are you guys looking at the slide that they got? In this experiment, researchers added a matchbook-sized dancing gorilla to one of the images. Do you see it? The gorilla was 48 times the size of the average nodule. The purpose of the experiment was to see how many of the radiologists noticed it. Do you see it yet? Okay. Let's just think about this for a minute. I'll show it to you in a moment. Not seeing the gorilla when you are a radiologist is like going to your bedroom to look for a sock and not noticing you have an extra mattress laying in the floor. It's like them asking you when you get the rent a car to check around for damages and not noticing that a whole door is missing. That's what it's like for a radiologist not to see it. It's beyond comprehension how people could simply note, not notice something that's right in front of them that is much larger than what they are supposed to be looking for. Now, can you guess what percentage of the radiologists did not see the gorilla? Anybody take a guess? Okay. 83%. Okay, if you look, oh, this is kind of blurry. No wonder you guys can't see it. In fairness, it's a little blurry, but okay, do you see right there in the top corner? You see the little gorilla? Now do you see it now that I'm pointing to it? I need a pointer. It's right 
in the corner and it looks like a little gorilla. I wish I had a pointer. Does anybody see it? There we go, there we go, thank you. Give him a raise. <laughs> Do you see it now? Do it again for him, Curtis. Now mind you, the, ver the version of the slide that you're looking at is, uh, you know, it's, it could be clearer in vision, but now you see it. Now you see it, now that it's pointed out to you. Now because they used eye tracking, researchers could see that of the radiologists who did not identify the gorilla, most had actually looked right at it. On top of that, these were not us. These were trained radiologists. Not only did they go to medical school, they did an additional five years of training to specialize in their field. And since radiology is one of the highest paying medical specialties out there, it attracts some of the brightest medical minds in the world. So the point is, these are very talented, gifted, persistent, trained individuals, yet in this study, eight out of 10 did not notice that little gorilla right in front of their faces. Why do you think they didn't see the gorilla? Simple, they weren't looking for it. They were going about their days, doing the things they normally did. They were laser focused on the assignment. They were looking for only what they expected to find. See, when radiologists are looking for tumors, they're looking for a particular shape or a particular pattern based on what they have learned and what they have seen in the past. Stay with me. We often live our lives like radiologists do. We look for God to show up in a particular way based on what we've learned and what we've seen him do in the past. And much like God surprised the world by coming in the form of a baby, he shows up in our lives in all types of unexpected ways that when we're not looking for him to come in that way, we completely miss it. He comes in unexpected ways, in undetected ways, in unbelievable ways. And as soon as the researchers told the radiologist to look for the gorilla, just like when we kind of highlighted it just now for most of you, you were like, oh, I see it now. We have to become trained in the art of seeing the move of God in our lives. So oftentimes we'll write it off to coincidence, write it off to something somebody else did, give someone else God's glory, not being fully aware of the reality that no, this came from God. This is your blessing. This is your father. This is the work of your heavenly father. The difference wasn't a matter of what was there. It was a matter of what they were looking for. It is also this way with God's blessings in our lives. God is always lavishing us with blessings. The truth is, if we aren't looking for them, we don't see them. But that does not mean they aren't there. 
if you aren't trained to see God's blessings, there's a good chance you'll be stingy with your finances. The Corinthians often had a focus problem. Here God is reminding them of God's provision and how God will continue to provide their needs. It, it was kind of like I told my husband the other day, I had a shift. In my house we have this pantry. And it, it has been disastrous for the past few years because my whole process was I don't like to do things over and over again. So if I can find a way to automate things or to make them go more smoothly, it makes my household run more smoothly. So my goal was I'm going to go buy in bulk, go to Sam's Club, get plenty of something. So then that way, instead of going to the store every week, I can go every month and I won't have to I can use that time to do something else so I can be more efficient. <sighs> yeah, I didn't calculate in that plan that I had children and that the minute those things hit the shelves, they were going to consume them immediately so that that didn't quite go the way I had initially planned it. And so what I discovered that I really already understood about human behavior is sometimes we have a poverty or a scarcity mentality. And when we have this poverty or this scarcity mentality, we think that we're not going to have in the future. So what we do in that moment is we, we store up, we, we try to get more than what is necessary just so that we can be prepared for when we don't have again. And I don't know about you, but many of us have that because it's something that it's just intrinsic in us until we unlearn that type of behavior. So what I had to do, and now the system works flawlessly, is they now see a pattern of how often I'm going to replace this, how often I'm going to replenish it. No one feels the need now. They don't feel like they have to take it and store it in their rooms or take it and eat it all at once because they know that there's a constant flow, that we're not going to run out, that there's no need to hoard, that all you need to do is take what is needed. And now, honestly, the stuff isn't moving fast enough. Now I'm worried about the expiration dates, like, whoa, maybe I have too much now. And I didn't change anything, just the mentality changed. God is reminding us that he has all that we have need of. He has a never-ending supply. And as we move from that scarcity mentality to the abundance mentality and recognizing the great abundance we have in our access to our Heavenly Father and all that he has in store for us, it removes that hoard mentality where we feel like we got to hold on tightly for life to what we have because we understand that when we release it, God has more. There's more. There's more. The Corinthians had that focus problem. And here God is reminding them of God's provision and how he will provide for their needs. In verse 15, Paul thanks God for a gift that the Corinthians haven't even given yet. He has such confidence that God will move in their hearts. And how can he do that? How can he do that? Because Paul has already seen God at work so many times. Paul tells the Corinthians that they, quote, will be enriched in every way, end quote. 
because he is the same Jesus follower who said, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. He knew God was the one who always showed up for him because Paul frequently counted God's blessings. So my first challenge to you this morning is, can we become counters of our blessings? Let's, let's really think about that for a moment. Let's think about it as we see things going on in our life. Let's think about God's provision and how he's provided for us. I don't care how small it may seem. I'm sure I annoy people to no end to the things I give God credit for. I'm sure they're thinking, oh, I'm sure that was just a coincidence. And I'm positive that it was not. Amen. I'm positive that God is thinking. My husband and I, we went to lunch the other day, and it took an enormous amount of time for us to get our food. And we weren't mean, we weren't fussy, we weren't cranky, but we just wanted to know what happened. Like, we come here all the time. They were like, we know, you come here all the time. We're so sorry. Your meal's on us. Like, really? The whole meal? Like, not just like I'm going to take off a couple dollars, discount your coffee. Like, you're giving us the whole meal? That was a blessing. That was a blessing. And here's the thing. I then had to just make sure we understand how blessings work. Blessings don't work when you take advantage of people. That means I still need change so I can tip my server who had nothing to do with how long it took for that food to come out because this is her blessing. So we still have to get in that mindset of, yes, God may bless me, but I'm still cognizant of how do I need to move and operate to continue to be a conduit, a blessing to others. Did you notice Paul said one must give as he decided in his heart? Even at that moment, something someone taught me a long time ago, my children were servers for a little while, and they really started to help me to see and be sensitive to certain needs that servers have. And so now I'm even cognizant, like if they take something off the bill, I try to make sure I tip over the amount that was the original amount so that their tip is not hindered by the fact that someone gave me a courtesy or a deduction or something along those lines. But do you see how that's in my heart? I hate when I sit down and they automatically put the amount on your tip. You're like, what? You know, with party of eight, the, the, the gratuity is already determined. I love it when they give you the opportunity to make that determination based on what's in your heart, based on what you desire to give. Because quite frankly, I would give more than what they put on there. Give me the opportunity. That means that for us, we have to get to that point. He says that that means he didn't expect them to just show up in the moment and give what they thought they could joyfully give. It seems that there was some sort of planning that was taking place. He expected them to decide beforehand what they could give, and what they could give cheerfully. So let's look at how we can do that. It's easy to be led by hurts. It's, it's easy to be led by the things that are all around us or by whoever is yelling at us the loudest. But I believe our giving is most effective when we follow where God leads us. When deciding whether or not to give, I take my time to pray about it. 
and to make sure I have peace in my heart as I give. If I feel like I'm being pushed or coerced into it, then I know I'm giving under compulsion, and that is not the spirit of God. So there are three ways, three practical ways that we can make sure that our giving is easy, cheerful, and fun. Are you ready for the three ways? Number one, give from a grateful and broken heart. Give from a grateful heart and broken heart. The first tip I'm determining what to cheerfully give is from a standpoint of grateful and broken. And so ask yourself two questions. What am I grateful for? What breaks my heart? What am I grateful for? What breaks my heart? And make a list of the things that you're grateful for. Is it your local church? Is it your school? Is it an online ministry that impacted you? Is it a nonprofit that's doing some awesome work? And then think of what breaks your heart. Jesus often referred to the connection between our money and our hearts. It makes sense for us to give towards needs in the world that we desperately long to see met. And that's what I love about our uniqueness. Some things may pull at your heart that I just wouldn't even notice. Some people just have this thing where they, you know, they see um, animals being in danger or pets being in danger, and that's just going to break your heart. Some people have it when they see children being hurt, and that's just, that's just a heartbreaker for us. Some people have something where they see people in other countries um, being destitute and, and not having what they need, and that just breaks their heart. Do you see how there's room for all of us? Whatever it is that God has connected our heart to that really impacts us, that really matters to us, that as we pour into that area, it used to discourage me because when I would see those things and I would see those needs and I would pray and I would say, God, what can I do? But then I began to realize you can do something by giving. I may never set foot on the soil in that land. I may never go to that prison. I may never work in that hospital. I may never work with those veterans. I may never work in that shelter, but I can send a seed to support those that are doing that work, amen? Yeah. So that's one simple way we can help initiate change is by giving. Number two. I have a great testimony for number two. Give a percentage. I know it's so tempting to believe we will give more when we have more, but that's just not the way it works. Parkinson's second law demonstrates that our expenses will rise to meet our income. How many of you can be a witness to that? Your expenses will rise to meet your income. Translation, you'll always spend what you earn. The more you earn, the more you'll spend. Unless we have already put systems in place to prioritize our giving. And this is why it is important to predetermine what you will give and what that percentage will be. Now, I was sharing with Troy, God brought back to my remembrance. It was kind of comical. Uh, we were talking in the fellowship hall the other day, and I was remembering when I got my first job, how I had set in my mind, just like the word had said here, 
that I was going to give 10% of my earnings as my tithe. And the company that I was working for, they asked me, when they made me the job offer, they said, what is your salary requirement? Now, don't laugh, but I was a young person, and I didn't have anybody in my family who was in a professional career. I didn't have a frame of reference for how you answer a question like that. And so I just kind of like came up with this formula, and I said to myself, I want $1,000 a week, so I'm going to ask for $52,000. So I asked them for $52,000, and they said, okay, let me, let me get back with you, um, and we'll get back with you and let you know what the committee decide. And I said, okay, great. So I'm in my little office. I can see it as plain as day. I got the little printer here on the side with the pullout, and I'm printing up my, my expenses, and I've got my calendar, and I've got my schedule out, got my, my, Excel, my Excel spreadsheet. And so I'm like, 52000 I'll be set. You know, I'll be able to pay my rent. I'll be able to do this. I'll be able to pay my student loans. I have it all figured out. And as I get to the bottom of my spreadsheet, I was like, ooh, I forgot to put the ties in. So I put the ties in, and then it dropped. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And so as I'm putting it in, and I took the 5200 out, completely being transparent, I was like, well, maybe I should just tithe on the net. Maybe I shouldn't tithe on the gross. So I went back in, and then I changed the numbers, and I was like, what is the taxes going to be? So I took it out. So I dropped it from 5200 to some other lower number, and then I hit the print. When I hit the print, peace left my body. And I was just sitting there like, it's just me here. Nobody knows what I'm doing, but the peace left my body. God knew what I was thinking. He knew what I was planning, and I instantly didn't have peace. So I turned back to the keyboard, put the 5200 back in for my ties, hit print. Do you know when I hit print, I got a call back from the firm. They called to let me know that they took my request to the committee. They decided they weren't going to give me 52000 They were going to give me 58000 When have you ever known a company, after you've already told them that you would accept less, pick up their phone and call you and offer you $6,000 more than what you told them you would accept. Can we say blessing? It was clear to me that's not a coincidence. It's not a this. It's not a that. God honored my obedience. I'm confident if I had left that little number the way it was, then my little figure would have stayed the way it was. But it was his way of demonstrating to me, you can't beat me at this game of giving. I have an abundance. I have more than you will ever have need of. You can't beat me. You're not doing me a favor. All you're doing is showing me that you trust me. And as you show me that you trust me, then I can trust you with more. He can trust us with so much more when we beat this game of feeling like we can't give. I know it's tempting to think that. But it also helps when we make this percentage. Because when we make a percentage, we don't have to feel good or bad based on the dollar amount that we gave because our giving was based on what we were able to give. So $10 may be a whole lot for me. 
if I only have $100 in my, to my name. Amen? So whatever it is, when we set that percentage, whether it be that 10% as I made a commitment in my life I wanted to do for God, or whatever percentage it is that God places on your heart, staying true to the percentage rather than the dollar amount helps you to increase in your giving. And then last, lastly, number three, start a seed account. Consider creating a line item in your budget that you always replenish that is solely for giving and nothing else. This keeps all your money from just going into one big bucket and deciding and between blessing others or purchasing something for your home. And if you have a seed account, that allows you to determine what amount that you're going to put in there. And then it's easier to give and it becomes more fun. You can work with your family. My husband and I, we decided we would make it official. We said, okay, we're going to create a foundation. And then we've got to figure out like how we're going to fund it. And we're going to put a certain amount of money. And then our kids get involved. And we're like, okay, what causes do you want to give to? And they tell us what causes are important to them. And then, you know, we give. It's, it's giving becomes something we do that is cheerful and it's fun and it's exciting. It's not something that you're like, oh, I got to give. It's something you can do joyfully. And then when you have that seed account, you really see it as not being your money anymore, that this belongs to that cause. This belongs to whatever it is you're going to be sowing into. And you'll feel like you're spending someone else's money if you dip into that account. So in conclusion, scientists have described a crazy phenomenon called the butterfly effect. Anybody familiar with the butterfly effect? The butterfly effect is pretty amazing because what it basically says in, in the truest sense of the effect is air molecules distributed by a butterfly's wings can affect the weather on the other side of the world, even several days later. A butterfly can affect the formation of a tornado. It's a real thing. You can look it up scientifically. It's called sensitive dependence on initial conditions. But it applies to so much more than molecules and weather patterns. One small change on the front end of a situation can lead to tremendous impact down the road. I want to give you an example to demonstrate this point as we close. A man named Norman Borlaug was named Person of the Week by ABC News. The reason? The network had determined that his hybridization of corn and wheat had saved over a billion people. Yes, over a billion people. But was Norman Borlaug the one ultimately responsible for saving those billion human lives? Well. They wouldn't have been saved if it hadn't been for a man named Henry Wallace. Wallace served as the US Vice President in the 1940s, and according to Andrews, he used the power of that office to create a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to hybridize corn and wheat for arid climates. And he hired a young man named Norman Borlaug to run it. So should Henry Wallace get the credit for saving those billion lives? But as it turns out, Wallace was mentored as a six-year-old by a student at Iowa Agricultural College. 
This brilliant student took young, took the young Wallace out on botanical expeditions and imparted a vision about plants' potential benefit to humanity. The student was none other than George Washington Carver. So should Carver get the credit? Do you see how this can keep going and going and going? It's a butterfly effect. Yes, on the end, you see this end result. But it started long before with some action that I'm sure they didn't anticipate would have the effect that it ultimately had. That's the challenge I leave with you this week. That there's some action, some small thing that God has placed on our hearts to do that we think still is some small thing. So we don't feel a real pressure to move, to give, to participate, to be a part. But we don't realize that in this world there is a butterfly effect. There is other people that are waiting on us to move out on faith. There are other people who are waiting for us to receive this calling that God has given to us. There are other people who are depending on our generosity because it's going to make a tremendous impact in their world. So as we go forward in this week of Thanksgiving, as we prepare with our families and we eat the turkey and we eat the greens, the beans, the tomatoes, and all the other things that come along with this season, I pray that we will also be thinking of all that we are thankful for and how God can use us to be a blessing to somebody else who needs a little bit more to be thankful for as well. They'll be thankful that God sent you. Whether it was you in that coffee house, whether it was you in that hospital room praying for them, whether it was you on that phone with them giving them encouragement, there's something that I know that God is going to assign you to do this week. And it's my prayer that as we move forward, that we will see it. Not like the little gorilla that nobody could see, but we will see that opportunity. And we will know that it is God. And we will know that he is counting on us to make the difference.